It would be hard to uh, have spent any time in New York or, to, or many other places in the world and not have come into contact uh, with Chabad, Chabad Lubavitch, uh, as it's called. Every Hasidic movement has a name after the place where it spent its formative years, and that was, for the case of Chabad, that's the 102 years they spent in the town of Lubavitch, which is a very small town not far from Vitebsk, in White Russia, in Belarus. As well, uh, in this case, uh, Chabad is, uh, is the name of the, of the philosophy, of the conceptual framework that drives this particular Chassidut. So many of you have come into contact uh, with the Chabad of the late 20th, early 21st century. So what uh, what I would like what I would like to do here uh, is go back to the origins, go back to its roots, go back to the fundamental concepts that are the core around which all of the very extensive uh, intellectual structure of Chabad Chassidut revolves around, and as well in ways that are sometimes not so obvious informed the activities, the social structure, uh, and the nature of Hasidic Chabad for the subsequent uh, almost two and a half centuries. One of the interesting things that, uh, if it's possible, uh, at some level, to step back a little bit, obviously, I'm part of the community, is how much these <coughs> core ideas uh, which are really, in a sense, uh, a set of uh, a set of uh, almost what we've seen the Hasidot do and live as uh, for this entire period. So, um, forgive me if I state things that are sort of well known to anyone familiar uh, with Hasidot, but uh, I'm, 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 I'm going to err on the side, sort of uh, laying things out in a simple way, and those who find it uh, beneath their knowledge will, of course, forgive me. So, the core text of Hasidot Chabad, and indeed Hasidot Chabad really, as a, as a Hasidot, uh, I won't say uniquely, but unusually revolves primarily around a set of ideas and explanations. When we say Hasidut and Chabad, we're not necessarily talking about, one, more, more precisely, when we say Hasidut, in most circles, uh, what we're talking about is the the structure, the customs, the, the spiritual flavor, the, the, the nature of the community and the interaction uh, between the, the Rabbein and the Hasidim. In Chabad, when we say though all those things naturally exist in Chabad, in Chabad, when we use the word Hasidot, we mean specifically things that are in books or recorded. We mean specifically Torah, specifically intellectual explanations of the Torah of Chabad. That's when, if you ask anyone who's a member of Chabad, 
you don't ask them, you know, what is your thought about Hasidus? Like, did you learn Hasidus today? What are you learning in Hasidus? Well, it's Hasidus is a noun that is used the same way you would say Gemara or Halach. And this is, and this revolves around the idea that in essence Chabad, which as most know is an acronym for Chachma Bina Dat, uh, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and in particular Chachma means the cognition, the capacity to uh, sufficiently let go of yourself and erase all your earlier ideas to be open to entirely new ideas that hopefully come from a place beyond uh, the human intellect. Bina is the capacity of understanding an idea to the point where, as we say in colloquial English, you get it, you understand the idea, you see as if it were what it's saying about the world, what it's saying about Torah, what it demands of you. And last of all, that, which is realization as it's used in 18th and 19th century literature to realize your ambitions, which means to make it real. That literally is realizing in the sense that this idea now becomes real to me and my life and my choices are now, are now guided and expressive of uh, this, particular, this particular idea. That idea becomes so real, it begins to influence the uh, the structure of what we would usually call ordinary life. Now, the original text of Chabad the, is, of course, the Tanya, which is actually one of the interesting enough. It's one of the earliest published, not the earliest, but one of the earliest published Hasidic books being published for the first time in 1796. And basically there is none, there is no Hasidut, either written by the seven rabbis of Chabad or its, or various Hasidim who wrote Hasidut. There is no Hasidut that doesn't reflect that on the Tanya uh, and in a sense uh, expand and expound and develop its ideas. One of the most core ideas in Hasidut Chabad is something that we're going to be looking at in these two short texts. It's expressed in many places, but I thought it was nice. Many people are familiar uh, with the first few chapters of the Tanya. This is from the end. Now, the Tanya itself uh, has three sections that were created by Rosh Zalman Vliadid, the founder of, of, of Hasidut Chabad. The first is Likutei Amorim, which is basically a guide to attaining uh, the to the possible attainment of that level that is attainable to every Jew, the idea of the Bayani, the intermediate person who has control, absolute control of their thought, speech, and action, but may occasionally still possess a desire for something wrong. Uh, you have uh, you have the Shari which deals with the intellectual ingredients that one needs for deep and focused meditation on the idea that all of the universe and all of the spiritual universes are absolutely one uh, with the Ain Sof, with the Kabbalah, the term from Kabbalah that Chabad uses a great deal. And last of all, the third section is the Gerita Tshuva, because as you'll see even mentioned in this text, that the ideal state of 
self-development can only be attained when one isn't dragged down by, by negative uh, activities, thought, speech, and action, and therefore you need a process of tshuva. So appended to it is sort of a handbook for tshuva. The other two sections of Tanya are a series of, uh, of letters and discourses that the Alter Rebbe wrote uh, during his lifetime, Chabad, we call Rabbi Shlerizal, the Malatani, the Alter Rebbe, the Old Rebbe, the first, and he uh, and his sons put it into the Tanya. So the Tanya we have is five sections. We're going to study sections from the first two. And what I would like to do is simply go through the text. You have the Hebrew and English. I Roman numeral the, the Hebrew and, and Arabic numeral the English. So you can follow whichever text you'd like. I'm, go, I'm going to read from the Hebrew and translate. The translation may not be the same, precisely the same as the one uh, that you have here. So the Tanya at this point has gone into a long discussion of different levels and different modes of Avat Hashem, of loving God. Which the Tanya already explained that the word Ava means to desire, it means to cleave. It's the, the way in which we, we, ex, we experience uh, a sense of closeness. And he goes on to say, that there's a range of levels of Ava that come from the right side, that come from kindness, from the experience of closeness to Hashem. And I'm not going to dwell on that, but this, this little piece we could do is uh, carrying in at the previous 49 chapters. We can go directly to number two, Roman numeral two, number two. There is a level of love of the Eitzel that is, is above them all. Kamala sazav alakasaf, like the advantage silver has over gold. Vihi ava ish, it is like a, it is the ava, the love of a burning flame, the bechinas gevuras, alyonos debina ilah, Kabbalistic term, the supernal gevurot of the highest level of bina, of understanding. What this means is that, that in that it's understood. As you know, the two primary midah, the two primary uh, divine qualities that actually impact each of the worlds are chesed and gevorah. Chesed, love, giving, gevorah, uh, uh, judgment, uh, withdrawal, distance, and chesed typically creates ava. And gevorah typically creates year, creates avga, right? If you have the sense of closeness, brings love, the sense of distance brings awe. However, there is a love that comes from this quality of Gevura. So Gevura is the sense of, of distinctness, of being distant, of being far and very different from God, which is a hard thing to feel. Bina, which is the quality of understanding, which divides things up and defines them, the Kabbalists explain, is the intellectual. Now again, this is all a parable. These ideas exist in the human being and on a much, much more subtle level, of course, in the divine world and sphere. But at any rate, in a person, the way you divide things up, the way you analyze things and categorize things is through Bina. Since Gevura is the quality of limiting, creating boundaries, delineations, limits, 
Bina and Gevur are deeply related. Bina is the intellectual process that brings the Gevur. Now, in, if a person deeply is deeply thinking about godliness, we can reach a point where this very sense of distance and distinction, in other words, I understand how limited I am and how beyond all description the Ain Sof is. I understand my limits and I am bothered by that. So a love can emerge from a sense I am so stuck in this small place. I am so limited. I am so not of any of the qualities of God. I don't want to be stuck here anymore. And this is this burning flame. I don't want to be stuck in the limits that even my own conception of holiness plays on me. I want to break out of that. And I'm yearning, and this is the idea of a flame, a flame rises. I'm yearning to break out of all these limits. I want to be one. I know that, that the Ain Sof is the truth. I want to be one with God. And the more I sense my limits and, and, the, and all the pettiness I possess, the more I want to bust out of it. So, the Hanyan Dei Tagboros Yisoka Eish, the Roman numeral four, and this is through the quality of fire. There are four traditional uh, uh, elements in ancient science, and Hasidah uh, talks about the idea that they exist in the soul. So the quality of fire, and from this you come to thirst. As you know, heat creates thirst. And this thirst, so in other words, the Tanya is saying that this heat, this yearning, creates a thirst uh, which, it, which causes a person to want to leave everything and be connected. Uh, as it says, My soul thirsts for you. We have, uh, there's an igun about this, we'll see later. One becomes um, lovesick. In other words, kola, the term of, of the idea of, of, of being a kola, the idea of chalayim, of illness, is a sense of weakness. This is something Hasidah talks about at great length, that every illness is a lack of a lack of, the, of life force flowing from the soul into some organ of the body. So if the truth is the Ain Self, and if I am so distant from it by virtue of the limitations of living in a world that is defined spiritually all the more so the physical world, so I become ill, I am lacking energy, I am lacking true life. So first there's a thirst for godliness, then there's a sense of illness, that I am incomplete, that I am weak, that I'm missing something. And what comes from there? Uh, and then one comes to close hanefesh, manish, klot hanefesh, manish, kumashukasav, gam kolt gam, that the, in Tilim we say that my soul is leaving itself. The word kolot literally means to end. So klot hanefesh, my soul goes out. We know that's what happened to Nadav and Avihu. According to Chassidut, they went into the Beit HaVikdash. It's not so much that they were punished as their souls just left them in this enormous revelation of godliness that they entered. And this is the idea of Klotanefesh. We'll see in a moment that this is a path that we don't want to go that far. But at any rate, the general sense is, my soul is stuck here in this package, in this world, in these limits. And the truth, is, is, is that, is, is, it, in, is it in its source of the Ain Self? Why am I stuck here? I don't want to be here anymore. And this comes, again, from the quality of Bina. The more you understand and meditate on how, on how limited and how 
uh, incomplete our life and our being is, and how complete and infinite being self is, the more you say, well, if that's my source, I want to be there, why should I be here? And this is the, um, and this is the root of the, of the avoda, the service of the Levian in the Beit HaMikdash below. Um, and there's a little note here that says in the future, uh, the Levian will be the Kohanim because this really leads to the highest possible level. The halachic parameters of this will be for another time. So number six, Roman numeral six, Ravodat HaLevian, Halta Laharim Kolrina Vatodah. What was the work of the Levian? They lifted up a voice of song and appreciation, the Shira of the Zimra, with song and, and music, Shira with the mouth, Zimra with instruments, Benigun and Ima with pleasant singing, Ivchinas Ratzoy Veshov, with this, like, this is from the Nevuah of Yecheskel, the first chapter of Yecheskel, the Chayot, the, the angels, Ratzoy, they are running forth, Veshov and returning. This is this burning love, like a flame that shoot that that shoots out uh, that shoots out uh, from a uh, from a lightning bolt. This very intense flame. Kedisa Nigmara is discussed in the Gemara in Chagiga, which is discussing this vision. Then in number seven, he goes on to explain that uh, that it's impossible to explain this properly in writing. In other words. We can talk about what the feeling is. We can talk, as he did in the 49 chapters before, and in the piece we're going to do next, about the meditation that leads one to this feeling. But in the end, you're going to have to experience this. This is not something that can be explained specifically in writing, though one should know that in later generations, this idea is elaborated upon much more. Uh, the, in, in the Tanya, there are many things, there are many especially experiential and Kabbalistic things that the Alter Rebbe does not discuss. Um, he still felt constrained from revealing everything. In other words, making everything available in intellectual language. What Hasidus Chabad does, basically, is it takes what Kabbalists experience and the early Hasidim experienced uh, as a as an experience, as a feeling, and puts it down in a way that, as he writes earlier in the Tanya, anyone with a brain who wants to learn can understand. The question is, how much do you reveal about what's going on to people who aren't there yet? So the answer in Chabad has always been a lot, and more and more and more and more. But before the Tanya was written, at the time the Tanya was written, there was still a certain uh, reticence. Uh, and this had to do, among other things, the fact that the Al most of the Alter Rebbe's chaverim, his his fellows in the in the uh, in, in the holy group of people gathered around the Magad of Hazrich, were not as enthusiastic about revealing these things uh, as he was. Indeed, when the Alter Rebbe was nostalgic after he passed away, one of his students. Rebaran of Strachella, who started his own Hasidah, came along and said, and said, you know, this is the amount that we've revealed and made available intellectually is sufficient. Let's not go any further. The Alter Rebbe's son, Rebbe, the Mittler Rebbe, who went on to be the second Rebbe of Chabad, the first one to live in Lubavitch, uh, basically said, 
that actually what I think my father wanted and where this is going is that we've only just begun. And let's reveal as much as we can, as much as a human intellect can understand. And this has been the direction. So when he says, we can't ex I can't explain these things well written, but anyone with a heart, Nilva Vanova, who has a heart, an understanding, and goes on to say after getting rid of your negativity in, in, in number seven, so you'll be able to get what I'm saying. In subsequent texts, these ideas actually are spelled out and discussed uh, both in terms of, of concept and technique at great length. This statement is one of the things that does change from the Tanya. That the things that Tanya says, well, this is, I'm not sure we're going to talk about this. Subsequent generations do. But at any rate, the Hine, number eight, Seder Avod Mitzvah. The order of the service that flows from the Torah Mitzvah and Shechet that is drawn with the Chinat Avazu from this intense love is actually entirely not this yearning we talked about, but the return we referenced in Yefezkel. It's written in the Sefi Yitzir, one of the very ancient and earliest Kabbalistic texts. Um, it, it appears, uh, it, it references to its texts appear already, and you can already see them from the Talmud and Midrashim, but uh, but uh, the, among the Mukubalim, the tradition is that it goes all the way back, at least some of it, to Avram Avinu. Uh, this is the tradition within the community of Mukubalim. Vim what does it say? If your heart runs, if your heart yearns, shov la'echon, return to the oneness, perish. And this is the key. Vim if your heart yearns, he tshukas it's the yearning of the soul, shebelein and the heart, meaning in the right side, which is associated with holiness, when it reaches power and bursts into flame, and then into huge flames, very much, I close on that, to the sense of, of the soul leaving, the sense, I don't want to be here anymore. To pour itself in, the soul to pour itself in, to the bosom of her father, the life of all life, which means to say the neshama wants to return to its source in the very essence of the eight self and not be stuck in a goof in a physical world, in a body in a physical world. What says the master to leave this prison, the goof, a goofni in the in the in the bodily body, the gashmi, and a physical body, the dovka boy's bark to cleave to godliness. Sounds like a beautiful thing. You have this yearning, you want to, why be here when you, when the truth is the eighth? So, as I so, and this is the real love. Yashiv alibo, you take to your heart, Mamarazal, the statement of the sages, that you are forced to live. The Altarebbe basically says, why does the, why does the Pirkei have to tell us you are forced to live? I mean, we all know that we live and we have a strong life instinct and, we tend to do everything we can to preserve life. In other words, what, who is the Pirkei talking to? But you are forced to live. So yeah, you live and you didn't choose to come into this world and we very much don't want to leave it and that's the way it should be. So he says, you know who he's talking to? He's talking to the Jewish individual, individual who has this tremendous yearning, who wants to commit since, as we'll, as we'll see in the next piece, the truth is that everything, it, that the only true reality is the ain't self. 
So why should I be living in a world in which, it, in which, which its very existence denies the unity and infinity? It's a fragmented world of multiplicity, of falsehood, of evil. Who wants to be here? So to this are the people, this is what we say in Pirkei Avot, If you think you're going to fly away, you are forced to be here. In other words, this is a halacha in a sense. Don't you dare fly away. Don't you dare leave the world behind. Shov le'echad, return to the true oneness. Kedei l'ham shechayim al-yonam to draw from the supernal life. Don't go to the supernal life. Bring it down here. L'mata below ha'yidei Torah chayim through Torah which gives life. Because in the end, leaving before God tells you to leave is that to make God a dwelling place in this lowest of all possible worlds, this physical world in which one could go through, as explained early time in your whole life, and never once notice that there's anything other than its physicality. To truly become one, God's oneness, in a revealed way. And as it's written in the Zohar, to join oneness with oneness, which means to make the oneness of above be present in an experience of oneness here. That the, the hidden oneness, which is hidden in, in the highest worlds, should be revealed in this world through the Torah and Mitzvah. And this is something that Tanya explained at length, that in essence, that, and as we'll see the mechanism for it in the next piece, that in essence, when the the truth is everything is inherently an extension of the Ein Sof. And therefore, even the limits and concealment of the physicality of the world also is, even though you don't feel it. How do you feel it? Torah and mitzvot are specifically given to deal with the mitzvot demand physical activity. Mitzvot demand you actually have, you know, the money to give to charity. It's a Hasidic story. The two souls are passing each other. One soul has lived a long and good life in this world, and it's heading up. And there's another soul heading down. This is a story that, this is not a story I heard from, we heard from any of the Rebbeim. This is a story Hasidim tell each other, in particular when you begin learning Tanya with young men, women. These, this is a story the Mashpia, those who are to mashpiyah means to influence it. those who are teaching chassidot, I guess not just academic, tell their charges. So the story goes that I heard as a 12 year old. The, uh, the, there's two souls, one soul is going up and one soul is going down. So they pass each other in this, uh, in this shoot somewhere in between the physical and the spiritual where souls go up and down. And the soul coming down says, hey neshama coming up, what's it like up there? What's it like down there? He says, you kidding? For a few, this is a different, uh, so there was a different um, monetary reign at the time. In other words, uh, money was rare and things were cheap. He said, for a, for a ruble, you can buy the most beautiful etro. For a few kopecks, you can buy tzitzit. For, uh, you know, for, 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 for 20 kopecks, you can buy a chicken for Shabbat and fulfill that mitzvah. Now, the soul never, never experienced the mitzvah, the nusso. But it knows in what awe these things are held, that even the loftiest angels would yearn for once to put on tefillin, for once to eat a piece of 
chicken, or I don't know if you're a vegetarian, a piece of tofu, whatever it is, on Shabbos, right? So, and, uh, and, uh, and, and what happens? And, and what happens? So he's getting excited, and he hurries down the shul, to which the neshama who's going up says, don't run so fast, just wait till you'll have to see what you'll need to do to get those few kodas. And this is the, and this is the challenge. This is the, this is the pull. In other words, it is absolutely true, as we shall see. The case is that the Ein Sof is everywhere and everything. And what the Ein Sof desired is dearer than Tachton and the dwelling place in this lower world. But you can't, but to actually go through, to actually truly live a life in which we indeed make everything we do, every bit of business we do, every bit of, of social interaction we do in line, it's not easy. We all know that that halacha in its entirety in all four sections of Shulchan Aruch is really hard to keep in this world. There are all kinds of things you think you have to do to earn those covenants. And therefore, there's often a sense who needs this, but the answer is who needs it? We need it. Existence needs it. This is what the Ein Sof chose to need. And therefore, you're going to have to find the oneness here through the Torah and its vote, which reveal the presence of the Ein Sof um, in the finite. So when you, but at the same time, if you have no yearning for godliness, if you have no rutzo, you don't have this burning desire to break out of these limits, and these limits don't bother you, well then we become comfortable with these limits, and we make compromises, and we just accept, you know. We're not angels, that's exactly, you're not angels, and therefore you can be perfect in this world. But Mayor Sarah, blessed memory, um, he, was, he used to be known as Michel Absera. He, uh, he was the person who brought macrobiotics to this country, very active in the 60s counterculture. Got involved with the, with, with the, with the that was it, that's how they published the brother. And uh, became himself quite a, a, a beautiful expositor of Hasidus. And he wrote a book, which is a hard but worthwhile book to, be, to read, about the Tanya, called the possible man, which means to say that Tanya doesn't say that everyone can become this Benuni we're talking about, but if a person were to devote their whole life and all their energy to it, it is possible for every one of us to be a Benuni. And part of this idea, uh, the, this possibility is, is that you live in this world and nevertheless synchronize it and discover and live the godliness in it even where it's hidden and you don't feel it. But to want to do that, to be able to put that effort into, and, and to engage in this challenging and sometimes painful endeavor, there has to be this yearning. And this is what the end of the first section of Tanya is beginning to address quite, quite explicitly. That on one hand, the sense that, all, that there is that there is no reality other than so God is not a creator, God is the everything. The Ainsof is everything. And therefore anything that isn't feeling, that isn't expressing or feeling that, is false and untrue. And the assumption and it's not just that intellectually we want truth, our soul yearns for that truth. You just have to let it out. We can submerge the soul 
cover it over. This is the doctrine found in Kabbalah, discussed extensively in Hasidah of Klipot, in these shells, uh, you know, in these, uh, in these scabs that prevent it from expressing itself. But the moment you let the soul express itself, it doesn't want to be in, in, in the fragmentation, limitation, uh, and, and darkness and conflict, which is the nature of this world. The moment you realize that, we say, okay, go back to the oneness. If you really want to find oneness, understand that the very darkness and potential for evil and fragmentation and conflict and impossible choices present in this world, that is where you will truly find God's oneness. And to understand that, we move on to the next text. But let me begin with a with a Kabbalistic, with a statement from a Sefer Kabbalah by Rabbi Meir ben Gabbai. Rabbi Meir ben Gabbai was uh, one of the great uh, Mukubalim of the period between the expulsion from Spain and the Arit. There's a whole plethora of great Mukubalim at this time. And Rabbi Meir ben Gabbai writes in his Avodah Tarkodesh that um, if you say that the Eight Sof has the ability to exist as the infinite, but he cannot exist within the finite, in other words, as if it were, God is not actually present in the finite world, you are negating his, his completeness. In other words, to force God to be infinite and only present in the infinite is a description a prescription and therefore a limitation. To be unlimited and not be able present in, the, in limitation is in itself a limitation because it's description. It's a description. If God cannot be present, this is of course something that uh, that all the philosophers, not all, but many starting with, with Aristotle earlier have struggled with. It's something that, uh, that, that gave uh, the Ralbag and the, and the Rambam headaches and so on. But the fact is, is that what, what Rebbeir ben Gabbai says is that even if we can't exactly assimilate it and understand it ourselves, as we'll see in a moment, because we can't be in two states of mind at once, if you are to say that the Eitzot is infinite but cannot be present in the finite, so then you are limiting and saying the Eitzot cannot do something. You are saying that it cannot be present in something that exists, and therefore, you have a place where God is and a place where God isn't, and that's an, or where God cannot be, and that's a negation of God's completeness. This, this idea is elaborated upon greatly in, in the Siddhas Chabad, because the, I would say that the core theme of the Siddhas Chabad, and this, and we can talk about it later in questions if you want, and this informs the entire arc of Chabad history and all and, and, and much of its activities and, and social structure and so on, that this paradox, that on one hand we yearn for an absolutely one and infinite truth of the Ain Sof, but at the same time, it's not enough to say that in this world godliness is hidden. That in this world there are limitations because the oneness is invisible. In this world the light is occluded. Because this raises the obvious question. Where do those concealments and occlusions come from? 
do they come from something other than God? That's a big problem. So, to address this, the entire second section of Tanya, the Shari of the Bedouin, the portal of the unity and faith, comes along. And he begins with a parable. Page, the second page, uh, chapter 4. That a sun and a shield is a vayalukim. Now, for time reasons, I am going to give this over extemporaneously. Uh, and, and the concept is that this puzzle is seen as a very fundamental idea in explaining the nature of Havaya, Yud the four-letter name of Hashem, which is the name of revelation of creation. Elohim, which is the name of severity, concealment, and Kabbalah. Elohim is the name which allows Klipot, etc., or the other side to exist. You know, uh, Paro says, I don't know Havaya, Elohim, he knew, he could, he, he, because it's because this is a, a God as God as creator, it's found in nature, it's the God that is relatively easy to access. But Havaya, which is the infinite, indivisible, yet the source of all life, is, uh, is, is hidden. So, the Elohim, in other words, is the divine quality that creates gradations, limitations, fragmentation, which allows us to have a world in which we look around and which everything, name of God, is an expression of God's being. There's nothing in the universe. God is not created. God is the act of creation. Creation is happening all the time. This explained earlier in Shariqat Ramuna. There's nothing but the ain't self, nothing but the essence of the ain't self. There is some Eino Movado. This verse in Vetchanan doesn't mean that there's no other God other than God. It means that there is no reality other than the ain't self, including, as I explained earlier in Tanya, even the nature of evil itself. So if that's the case, the question, we, we then then come to this uh, question, how does this work? So we say, We look up at the sun, the sun shines on us, we all know there's all these discussions in the Talmud and Medrash of the sun being taken out of its sheath. So in Hasidus, Chabad, the idea is that the sun is a single entity, but there's an aspect of the sun which shines, and an aspect that limits. So Havaya is the Shemesh, it's the luminary, the source of life, the essential life, Chaya that being which is Chaya essentially alive and gives life to everything. Then there's the Nartic, the concealment, which allows, which allows us to exist as seemingly independent beings and live in a world in which there's all these different realities because the oneness, the fact that everything is the Ain't Self, is hidden and concealed, and therefore we live in a world of different levels where, where godliness is seen more or less or not at all, and where there are possible contradictions and conflicts and so on. It's like, it is, and I forget the exact reference, but there's a very famous Yerushalmi where it says that what the Torah says, don't take revenge, it's saying that if I take a knife in my right hand to cut some meat and it slips and cuts my left hand, so in revenge I will take my left hand and cut my right hand. It's of course ridiculous because it's just twice the pain. And but where does it come from? It comes from this idea that me and the other person are really two separate entities. When in reality, I move on. It's nothing else. Other than but this concealment, this the same way that uh, that the way that.
it were, consume the universe, the solar system, wherever it may be, so too we need a sheath to hide the sun so that it doesn't, it doesn't, it leaves us room to exist as independent beings out of free will and so on, all ideas that, that uh, we're all familiar with. Now, what's interesting is, is that the Alter Rebbe's parable, it's just a very short aside, matches best with the, with the, with the vision of modern physics of how the sun works. Because essentially, as we know, as, as we understand at the moment, I should never say no, because you never know what, what, uh, what physics comes up with next. But at the present moment, our understanding is the sun is this huge ball of hydrogen, it has an enormous mass. That mass, through gravitation, compresses the hydrogen at the core, and as it turns into helium, it fuses, and like a thermonuclear bomb, gives off an enormous amount of energy from the process of fusion. So, what, there's a small, relatively small part of the sun that's fusing, and that energy passes through all the other layers that are not, and energizes them, and those hot gases are what we see and what gives light and life to the Earth and so on and so forth. What's interesting is, is that if it's not possible, because physics wouldn't allow it, but if it were possible for a moment to rip away all the outer layers of the sun and let the fusing core be revealed to the solar system would literally incinerate the Earth, because so much of the energy is absorbed by those outer layers. So the parable, in the modern sense, works really well, because what Dr. Trevor is saying is exactly that. That God's names, in other words, God's being, it's a single entity, and it both gives light, it's both the source of light and life, and the concealment, and these are truly one and the same entity. So it's a very useful parable. But he goes on to say, if you look at uh, that, uh, that in num number four, being a commotion, be the zoo. This trait, who is the praise of the Almighty alone. No creature can create ex nihilo something from nothing. So the power of creation, which is the power of God revealing his limitless power, because only the limitless infinite being could create something ex nihilo, which is a long and involved discussion, but one which is uh, Brought, which is broadly uh, accepted throughout numerous uh, schools of Jewish thought. But God made the zoo, and this trait is above No created being can truly understand what it means to be a creator and the source of everything, and so on. Kamosh, it's number five now. Kamosh, just like no created intellect, can grasp God's greatness, the power in other words, the fact that he is the unitary and infinite source of life, of creation, which is a quality of his infinite power, because only something with infinite, literally impossible powers could create ex nihilo. Kachmanish, so true, no human being, no being can grasp God's severity, God's limitation, which is the quality of symptom, of contraction, and not allowing the life force from his greatness to be revealed to all the creations, the chayosim, to give them life and to give them existence in a revealed way, can't master upon it, but a concealed way, right? Everything in this room exists, we exist. There's nothing that tells us that it's coming from a higher source or even that we are all part of a single entity. 
So, um, number six, this light conceals itself in the created body as if it's something by itself. So now, and uh, he goes on to explain this idea that everything appears to exist entirely on its own, and the more you get away from the spiritual worlds, the more you get into, we finally get to the lowest of all possible worlds, which is the physical world in which everything seems to exist on its own. This is a world in which it's possible to imagine it without referencing the ain't self at all, which therefore is the greatest concealment. But that quality of limitation, that quality of not seeing, that quality of division is also an intrinsic part of the Ain't Self. The Ain't Self is a unity that is beyond conventional unity and fragmentation. Everything is this being, and the fact is that even though there appears to be all this separation and concealment and things that seem evil goes against the will of the Ain't Self. Nevertheless, everything everything is an extension of this being because the unity of the Ain't Self is one which is beyond simple unity or simple infinity. It's beyond the infinite, the finite, the unified, the fragmented. It's a one truth which can, which contains everything, but it is the only reality. And now we come back to what it said in the first part of the Tanya, and that's the idea of Torah Mitzvot, that you take something. As we know, halacha is highly granular. You have to do this in this way at this time, in a highly specific way, and uh, and uh, and you have to eat a certain you have to eat a certain amount of matzah in a certain amount of minutes, and it has to be at a certain time. You can't just make the seder on Sunday because that's convenient for the family, even if it's Thursday, and so on. And everything in halacha is very, very, is very, is highly, highly specific. Think about the laws of the writing of a sefer Torah. Think about the laws of, of business. A very subtle differentiation in how I describe something when I sell it or write a prospectus for a IPO. The slightest deviation is the difference between fraud and theft and an honest business deal. The whole Torah is set up this way. And it involves very specific, it involves the hide of an animal. You can't substitute anything else uh, for, for its filling. It has to be the hide of an animal. You can't substitute anything else for matzah. It has to be made from one of the five grains, and so on and so forth. So you have not just a mitzvot in the physical world. All of Torah mitzvot is about embracing, celebrating, and going all in. Limitation of time, of space, of structure, every possible limitation. You know, there was a great furor well before many of you even entered this world. In the early 90s, uh, it was uh, what would have been Israel's uh, 50th anniversary, it was 1998. So Israel's 50th anniversary. So the Hartford Current, uh, which is the literally the most vicious anti-Israel small-town paper anywhere in the world. Well, maybe there's one in Saudi Arabia that's worse. So the Hartford Karn went around inver uh, advertising people, uh, uh, interviewing people, I'm sorry, uh, who were not, shall we say, friendly to Israel for 50, Israel's 50th anniversary. So they interviewed, she actually lost her job over this, uh, they interviewed the head of the Hartford Seminary, which has long uh, relationship with anti-Israel elements. And she said, she is appalled 
that a religion, that a group of people identified by a religion, she's appalled that they should need a physical place for a religion. What's this idea of a holy land? You know, one can, one can commune with the divine anywhere. How can a place be holy? How can rocks be holy? How can a, the Western Wall be holy? So the whole Israel is founded on a primitive, you know, attack on what true religion is. For this is the only time she ever spoke, shall we say. But generally, uh, she, you know, she was as unfriendly to Christianity as she is to Judaism. The only time she ever spoke like that, you know, in line with the kinds of things we used to hear from the church in the, in the Middle Ages. But at any rate, the truth is that the idea of a holy land, the idea of ultimately a Beit HaMikdash, the idea that certain mitzvot only apply in the land of Israel, that's exactly this idea. Yes, rocks are holy. And specific place and time and rules and issues of architecture and agriculture are holy because the goal is to discover the Enod Novado. There is nothing other than God's essence in the finite. That the finite is as much God's essence, not an absence of it. It is a presence in a different form. Because to be truly one and truly infinite, you have to encompass infinite and finite, somethingness and manyness. And this is why the entire expression of Judaism is in halacha. One needs to journey to places that the Kabbalists were afraid to talk about uh, in earlier years to understand the importance of the detail of a, of a mitzvah. And this art and this dichotomy is the essence of the teaching. Uh, look, I, this is an explanation of something that's obviously very fundamental to Yadis, but this is the, en this is the essence of all of Hasidus Chabad. Um, and uh, and uh, to that I only say Zil Gumar, go finish it. But that being said, I should tell a story that came about in a place not geographically, but conceptually very far removed from Hasidus. And this actually took place in Vienna, which had a wonderful uh, Jewish community. Way, uh, way back when, but was not a, uh, in any way a stronghold of Hasidim. And this, uh, the story goes that uh, when Franz Josef, who uh, was one of, the few, uh, nine, one of the few European kings who Jews actually said the prayer for with, with, with true meaning, Franz Josef was someone who uh, tells us that democracy isn't always the best thing because when the when the democratic voters of Vienna elected Karl Luger, this horrific anti-Semite, numerous times to mayor, Franz Josef refused to validate his election. And he stood against the will of the majority of the people of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in giving rights to Jews in many, many ways. He was, uh, whatever else we say about Franz Josef, he was, a, uh, he was very good for the Jews, as they say. At any rate, so he allowed Jews into the parliament after the reforms of 1848. So there are many interesting stories about this, but the one which is relevant to our discussion is that, uh, that when the Jews came in, uh, when the Jews came in, uh, every, most of the deputies ignored them. One member of a very one aristocratic member of a very right-wing uh, Catholic-oriented party went over and greeted them and showed them respect. 
when uh, when he came back to his benches, everyone surrounds him. Why are you why are you greeting these these primitive people? He says, what do you mean? He says these people are so backwards that they have a law, and anyone doesn't know it isn't Shulchan Aruch. They have a law as to which shoe you tie first in the morning. They're so caught up in this uh, minutiae, in this in these little details. What you want these people to be making laws for us in our parliament? So he says just the opposite. A person for who is thinking about God, when they tie their shoes in the morning, these are the people I want to hear from. And this non-Jewish, I don't know who it was, I don't, the name doesn't come down in the story, parliamentary deputy in the Austro-Hungarian parliament, really got it. Uh, this is exactly the point. That, that because the quality of limitation and concealment of God's absence has to be a much a form of his presence as what we call God's presence, because there's only one. And therefore, the more we yearn to be one with godliness, the more we thirst, as the verse we use, as hopefully we'll have a chance to hear in the new one, the more we thirst and yearn to get out of these limits, the more we tell you no, come back into these limits, look at them a second time, not just through the lens, but through the activity of Torah and Mitzvot, and you will discover that your thirst is slaked, that your closeness and your desire for oneness with, with the Ein Sof is found specifically by discovering the true oneness of the Ein Sof, that the manyness is also one, that the finite is also as much part of the Ein Sof as the infinite. And this is and this is the arc of the journey of this inherent contradiction that we must live to get through to what, to what we are actually here for. So this is the basic uh, premise of, the, of this concept of the yearning for unity and what to do about it. That really, I wrote it's the fulcrum because it's the, it's the, it's the balance point that all discussion of Hasil of Kaban is built around, even you know, very uh, specific Kabbalistic discussions. So with that, I'd like to take questions, comments, and so on and so forth. Open discussion, yes? So thank you for well, Thank you very much. Um, I want to start off with two questions and then maybe open it up. Important. This I, important work, by the way. I hope so. Why not? Okay. Does this work? Okay, so I'll, I'll just keep going. So I want to start off with two questions and then open it up. Um, so the first one is really an educational question. Um, I, I wonder if you would speak a bit as to how um, within uh, within Chabad communities, whether with little children or with or with, uh, with young adults, um, the the kinds of aspirations and sensibilities that you were talking about are cultivated. In other words, on the one hand. The, the notion of this, you know, the sensibility of this, and, and the notion of the Yoki and how is that cultivated in little children, in older students? Uh, I wonder if you could speak, speak a bit about that. Could you repeat the question on the microphone? Sure. The question is how are these aspirations, both of the the close and nefesh, the yearning for godliness, and this sense of, shall we say, the dwelling place for God's oneness, how does this work educationally? 
uh, with small children, with older children, with old people, young people, and so on. So one of the one of the interesting things is is that if you go back to the as much as we know, uh, we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe of the Yosef Yitzchak, who recorded a lot of what would seem to be the commonplaces of his upbringing and of Hasidic life, uh, and even non-Hasidic life, that he had heard he was, uh, from the age of 10, he was a, an obsessive uh, note-taker uh, in a very good way. And he talked to old people, what did your grandparents, what did your great-grandparents tell you? So we know, we know something from his, from his writings. And it's, very, and it's quite clear that originally, uh, the ideas of Hasidut only began to be taught when, uh, when young men and certain young women, always certain young women, not universal until the founding of, uh, of, of uh, well, was meant to be universal. The Holocaust cut it off. There was a, there was a circle founded in the late 20s, early 30s um, by the previous, the Freydic Rebbe, the Yosef Yitzhak, we call him the Freydic, the previous Rebbe, um, for women. It was called Achotatzminet, the the Chabad Yeshiva that taught Chassidot to teenagers and up, which was revolutionary, but was known as Tom Tzmimim. So he created these groups called the Chol Tzmimim, Riga and Warsaw, the sisters of the Tzmimim. As a matter of fact, one of the most involved letters about how to proceed through various stages of his monument of meditation in Chassidot and in, and in the the way, the mode of tefillah, prayer of Chassidut, was written to a young woman who was a leader in one of these groups. It's in the third volume of the, third or fourth volume of the previous Rebbe's writings. But at any rate, some young women, many young men, uh, they began to learn when they were considered to be ready and more mature. As people got married young, often uh, after their marriage. And as years went on, and the upbringing of a child or a teenager in a Chabad home in, say, 1800 would have been just about the same as one in Vilna, more or less, except that you went to the Rebbe and so on. And they, what did they learn for a year at Shemayim and for, a, and for a knowledge of Judaism? Musar Agadot and so on, the standard in medieval Sephardim. Over time, younger and younger students began to be introduced uh, to Hasidut until in 1897, 1896, the, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Shalom Dov Ber, started where students from 16 on learned four hours of Hasidut a day in depth. And anyone who's familiar with the Rebbe or Shabbos Hasidut knows that it's a highly structured uh, intellectual philosophy. Uh, so the point is, and, and when the time we get to the, to the present, uh, the, the previous Rebbe and the Rebbe, they were already trying to find ways to give these, get these subtle ideas to younger and younger children. Anyone who's in any contact with Chabad communities or been to a Chabad camp uh, knows that uh, there's a collection of 12 verses, statements of the sages, the 12 psukim, but they're not psukim, including three from the Tanya, which are taught to children from a very young age. So for example, one of them is the idea that what Hashem wants is, uh, is a dwelling place in this world here at Tachton. And the idea that, there are, that uh, the idea that there are people who see very lofty things, and that there are neshamot that exist in angels in a different realm, 
yet what God wants is specifically in the highest level of aspiration, as if it were, of the Yetzov, is that God wants you to do mitzvot here, as soon as a child can think about things like beyond, and life, and death, and so on, they can begin to think about these things. And so there's been a, this, a, this constant, shall we say, lowering of the bar. But certainly, the idea that, uh, that much earlier in, in Chabad history, the idea that, uh, that, uh, that one should actually, and again, some are not so different from what you see in other places, but the idea that everything you do makes a difference, that when you say a bracha, you should you know, actually understand uh, understand that, it, that, that, so, that there's a process of creation. So God really is present in this apple, you're saying, the brachon, and is the source of its energy and sweetness. It starts pretty early, and again, beyond formal education, goes back a long way. Another thing that is part of the, is part of the educational process um, is, this, is this mindfulness of the of both the, that everything you do as a for makes a difference to your connection with Hashem, but also the presence of Hashem, um, of godliness in this world. And again, this isn't unique to Chabad, but, uh, but things like we, the, 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 idea, we, the, the idea of the importance of, of Modani, of Matila Yadayim, right by the bedside, this idea that everything you do is part, everything the child does is part of a very important uh, uh, you know, cosmic structure, and you're a big part of it. These are all things that are, 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 are brought in very early. And then, of course, there's the nigunim. The children are exposed to these nigunim and to the sense of, uh, this, hopefully, you know, the sense of yearning, uh, the sense of seeking. You know, the way they see the parents uh, engage in tefillah, the idea you take a moment before you say a bracha, you know, to, to meditate on it. People, you know, people pick up, uh, you know, pick up all these things. Uh, you know, I remember as a very young child, I asked her, you know, why are you singing this sad song? Which, uh, which wasn't sad, but it was, it was Kyle Taro, of, you know, as a, from, from Tillam, as a, uh, as the heart uh, you know, uh, leaps towards streams of water, so my soul yearns for you in this very thirsty place. So, so, uh, so over, so these, the both the exposure, but also as the years go by, very much the sense of explaining the the content of what the child is doing earlier and earlier is is part of the process. Uh, there's, uh, there's been some very good papers written on this. The fellow from Australia wrote a whole 700-page uh, book on, on this topic. Uh, but uh, this, is, uh, this is sort of what I can say from, uh, you know, in a sense, from experience. Yes? You know, I can understand the grand concepts, and I think it's like universal. But when you start with, um, when you start with a yearning, with a dissatisfaction, the journey that each of us has to reach that point is individual, and it isn't necessarily reached uh, for each of us in the same manner. And I was wondering, never having read the Tanya, I was just kind of thinking of the uh, parallel to Siddhartha and um, 